Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe, and today we are celebrating Halloween. Later in the hour, I'll talk with Carmen Maria Machado, a best-selling author who knows how to spook her readers. But first, the weather is a little gloomy. The sun is going down soon. There's a damp breeze blowing. And I am here with Lauren Renchi, our guide for this evening, as we go on a ghost tour. We'll be meeting up with the rest of the group, her paying customers, in a few minutes. By day, Renchi works in sustainable agriculture technology. By night, at least in the fall, she leads the Cedar Falls Ghost Tour. And Lauren, thank you so much for inviting us along. I'm so happy to have you. I'm glad you're here. So as you grew up and moved away, you've been on a lot of ghost tours. Tell me, tell me about that. So my favorite thing when I go to a new community is to take the ghost tour. And so I like to think that it lets me into a little bit more of that community's lore and to a little bit more of the behind the scenes of that community. So I've taken tours everywhere from Savannah, Georgia, New Orleans, Atlanta, Venice, Italy, London, you name it. And so when I moved here to Cedar Falls, I thought, well, shoot, I really wish there was a ghost tour in Cedar Falls that I could take. And about 30 seconds later, I thought, well, Maybe, maybe I could put that together. So when you take people on a tour, we're going to go in a few minutes. But tell me what you're hoping people will experience. I hope people, regardless of whether or not they believe in ghosts, come away with a deeper understanding, not only of Cedar Falls as a community, but also of individuals' lives and their experiences here in Cedar Falls over the years. Because I think that by talking about the people and places historically tied to these tales, you can empathize with them a little more. I can't wait. Thanks so much for inviting us along. So glad to have you along. Can't wait either. Before the tour, we got a chance to talk to a couple of new Cedar Falls residents, Doug Tyndall and Heather Dowd, about what they were hoping to learn or encounter that night. What made you want to go on a ghost tour? Uh, I was told to go on the ghost tour. No, actually, no, it's just, you know, like the the neighborhood is very old and unique. So I thought it would just be an interesting way to see the neighborhood. And yeah. Do you believe in ghosts? Yes. You do? I do. I would say no, but I want to. (laughs) Then it was on to the main event. Thank you for braving the cold and coming out. Um, And I hope that tonight you have a lot of fun. Uh, So some ghost tours can be silly and some can be scary, but my favorite type of ghost tour is a historical ghost tour. And so of course that's the one I've crafted for you this evening. So tonight you can expect a lot of history with some mysteries interwoven into it. The ghost stories that ended up on tonight's tour are the most interesting to me because most of them have been independently corroborated, meaning that I talk to people that have no relation to one another, aren't related, don't work with one another, haven't bumped into one another, and they told me the same or similar stories. So I think that's interesting. And second, these stories are all stories that have strong ties to history. So for that, I did a ton of my own research, but where I had a couple holes at the end, I reached out to the Historical Society and they helped me fill in those holes. So that's why part of my proceeds always go to the Historical Society. 
I'm not here to convince anyone that ghosts exist tonight. If you believe in them, more power to you. If you don't, I hope that you enjoy the spooky stories as just that, spooky stories. First, as some of you may know, there are many different types of hauntings and there's three main categories to think about. The first one is a recurring haunting. So this is a haunting that seems to happen the same way over and over again, regardless of how you try and interact with it. So opening and closing the same door or saying the same thing over and over again. And some people even theorize that these are not ghosts, but instead tears in the uh, space-time continuum. Little above my pay grade, but that's the first one. The second one is an intelligent haunting. And now these are the fun hauntings that do seem to respond to you, right? Like you set down a flashlight and it, it interacts with it. Or you ask it a question and it might respond. Um, it's typically thought of that these intelligent hauntings are here for a reason. Unfinished business. Uh, they want to make sure their wife's okay or check in on their children. Or they might even be attached to an object that was precious to them in life. And then the third type of haunting is a demonic haunting. And now these are the ones that people say leave scratches and leave bruises and harm people. And it's even thought that these weren't even humans to begin with. But we're going to stick to the first two fun types tonight. When you think about how to experience a haunting, you could go through your five senses, basically. So first, of course, you could see a haunting, whether it's an orb of light or a dark shadow or maybe someone that looks as clear as you or I. You could hear a haunting. Uh, so somebody respond to you, footsteps on the stairs. Uh, you could feel a haunting. So in an otherwise temperature-stable room, no drafts, it suddenly starts to get a little cold. That might be a haunting using the energy in the room, or perhaps you feel a hand on your shoulder. That could be haunting as well. You could also smell a haunting. And now this is what got me interested in all of this in the first place. So my short story is that when I was a young girl, my grandmother went from living with her husband, her mother, and her dog to all of them passing away within the course of a year. And so I used to go over to her house after school some nights just to check in with her and spend a little time with her, make sure she was doing okay. And one night I went over after school, walked in the front door and said, hi, Grammy, just like I normally do. And I didn't hear anything. So I walked to the back of the house thinking she's taking a nap back there. She's working in her office. And when I didn't see her, I thought, okay, I'll head back to school. I'll hang out with my friends till my mom picks me up. And as I was walking back out of the house, I walked into an absolute cloud of my great-grandmother's perfume, which is significant because not only had she passed away at that point, but she'd run out of that perfume in the 90s because it had stopped being produced in the 70s. So I just felt a little at peace thinking that my Gigi was looking after my grandma as well. Um, and so the last type, uh, uh, the last sense is taste. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has ever tasted a haunting, but I kind of want to know about it. So thank you very much. <laughs> Look both ways, don't become a ghost, and we'll all get there safely together. Follow me. There are about a half a dozen stops on the ghost tour in downtown Cedar Falls, places where ghost sightings have been reported and where Renshi has found historical documents about events that she believes could be connected to those sightings. The Cedar River, as Renshi explains, is a stop that is rich with lore. Here we are on the banks of the Cedar River, which has been the lifeblood of our community since its inception, right? It was what powered early industry here. People used this for their drinking, bathing, cooking water. Um, but the Cedar River is very 
dangerous year round. Like even now, it looks pretty gentle on top, but underneath the currents can be pretty swift and the rocks are pretty sharp. The first haunting that happens around this point over here is one of a younger woman. She's in her 20s or 30s. She's got long brown hair. People have described it as being up in a sort of Gibson girl do. And people have never seen her face. She seems to be walking away from them whenever they see her, crying softly, either into her hands or just facing away from them. And friendly Iowans, you see a young woman crying on the trails. People try and go up to her and help her, but as soon as they get in with 75, 50 feet of her, she disappears behind a tree, around a bend. No one's ever seen her face. So we look back into history to think, okay, if somebody is haunting the spot in the river of that description seen by multiple people, who is it? So this point in the river has had several tragedies with young women that fit that description. And the first one is that of Bertha Thompson. So Bertha, in 1892, she is 18 years old. And her sister Mary is 16, and they are thick as thieves. They are best friends. They love each other. And so it is a hot summer day when they think, oh, I am sweating. I need to cool off. So they round up all their friends and come over here to this point in the Cedar River, where even today, there's a nice shallow embankment most of the time. You can wander in pretty far without getting too deep. You'll see fishermen over here. Uh, and that's why they wanted to come here, too. They wanted to wade in. But what they didn't know was that some pretty heavy rains and strong storms earlier in the season had washed away the gentle slope, forming a steep drop-off. So it was hand in hand that Mary and Bertha waded out into the water and fell off that steep embankment. And neither could swim. They're wearing heavy clothes. Bertha manages to struggle back to the top and take a breath and look around, and she does not see Mary. So she takes one more deep breath, dives under the water, and that is the last time either of those women were seen alive. Their bodies wash up just down shore here, that was devastating for their families and devastating for the community. So perhaps this is Bertha Thompson, who's still looking for her sister, Mary. Our tour group wound around and through downtown Cedar Falls. And after a final stop on Main Street, we headed back to Overman Park for some final thoughts. As people were gathering under the picnic pavilion, we caught up with Doug and Heather, the new Cedar Falls residents we spoke with before the tour, to talk about how they felt about their new home with all of this brand new information. <laughs> what did you think? I loved it. I love, I mean, we, like you said, we moved here last year, and I love learning about where we live. So, yeah, I love the stories. Hearing all of these stories and thinking about it, does it change how you feel about this town that you live in now? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, the, like any town, you know, the ch things change, people do crazy things. It's just like anywhere else you'd ever live. I mean, I've lived, we've lived all over the country, all over the world. And, you know, I would say that the one, I guess, normal thing that happens is that there are eventually going to be some crazy events that happen. So it's kind of neat, though. I grew up in Cedar Falls, but I haven't really lived there for more than 30 years. Most of the stories that Renshi shared were not exactly uplifting. Ghost stories don't tend to have happy endings. But in an odd way, this tour made me feel more connected to my hometown than I have felt in a long time. And it was a lot of fun. 
Lauren Renshi is planning to hold the tour with some new stops again next year. You can find out more about it and the Cedar Falls Historical Society at cfhistory.org. Coming up, a conversation with Carmen Maria Machado, an award-winning writer who is definitely in touch with her spooky side. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Happy Halloween. This is a holiday that is largely dedicated to costumes and candy, but it is also the perfect time of year for people with a love of the spooky. And we have one of those people in our office, IPR producer Caitlin Troutman. It was her idea to go on a ghost tour, and she also suggested getting in touch with our next guest. So, Caitlin, I will let you do the honors. Thank you, Charity. Yes, I am the producer who loves the spooky, and I'm a huge fan of the work of our guest today, Carmen Maria Machado. Machado's writing highlights the horror of daily realities in a way that's thought-provoking and pretty spooky. Uh, Her short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, published in 2017, won the Shirley Jackson Award and was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction. She's also the author of the memoir In the Dream House and the graphic novel series The Low, Low Woods. And she is also a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Carmen, thank you so much for celebrating Halloween with us. Oh, my God. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So when did you first get hooked on spooky stories? Oh, my goodness. Well, I was one of those children who was both completely terrified of spooky things and then was also really drawn to them. So I did a I did a thing that I'm sure my parents absolutely loved, which was I would read scary books and then I would be up all night with the lights on, <laughs> really upset and not able to sleep. And then they would find the books and take them away. And then I would simply find new ones to scare me. Um, so I was both, yeah, like a very anxious, nervous easily scared child who also desperately loved the feeling of being frightened. And so, um, you know, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm familiar. Yeah. Life, I guess. <laughs> Can you throw out some of the titles? What were some of the books that you loved to get scared by when you were? Oh a my kid? goodness. I mean, I loved the goosebumps books. I loved Christopher Pike. I loved, um, Lois Duncan who wrote, I know what you did last summer among many, many other titles. She wrote like lots of titles for young people and I read like horror novels and I read all of them 
Um, and I also would read books like my father had a lot of Michael Crichton books on his bookshelf, which I would read. And I also have a very, very clear memory of reading Richard Preston's The Hot Zone, um, which I have a the memory is so clear because I was under my blankets reading it. And I remember reading it, I think in one night I was a speed reader. I mean, I am a speed reader. And even then I was reading really quickly. And I read the entire book in one night under the flat or under the blankets with a flashlight um, under the blankets with a flashlight and my um uh, and then I remember like finishing the book and closing it and turning it over and looking at the cover and it said the terrifying true story. And I think there was a blurb from, I think, Bill Clinton <laughs> or something about how terrifying he found this book. And I just remember this like cold, this cold sensation just like going over my whole body because I, you know, I'd been kind of reading it thinking it was a, a novel, I think. And then I understood that it was real and I, and I, or, you know, realish and was just so upset. Um, for so long. I read that so, book yeah. too. It, it completely, totally terrifying. And I still think about it because of course, right? we, Same. it happens. <laughs> These things happen. Yeah. I, you know, in the beginning of COVID, I did a really silly thing, which is I watched a bunch of pandemic movies, oh which I don't know what I was thinking. I know why, like why. Right. But this is what I'm talking about. Right. Like, should I have done that? No. Did I do it? Yes, of course I did. Um, and the one based on the hot zone, of course, is so silly. Um, but I also was just like, man, this story just following me around, you know? <laughs> following That's all so of us around. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's so funny. I did something similar at the beginning of the pandemic with like pandemic novels, pandemic stories. I could not tell you why. Um, I wonder, though, if you can tell me why you did or why do you think you enjoyed kind of being afraid or like finding those uh, scary stories as a kid? I mean, I think there was, you know, I think in a way I understood something instinctually, which now I can put language to, which is that like, you know, when you ha when you experience like a scary movie, for example, or a scary novel, you're, you're having a safe, controlled experience. It's like going on a roller coaster. I also love roller coasters for what it's worth, you know, like getting to have like a very exciting sort of intense physical experience that is, you know, safe um, and is controlled and, you know, you're getting to experience something in a, yeah, in a way that feels, you know, like you're not, you're not in any kind of real danger. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like, um, I feel like, yeah, that's sort of the, the part of it that you know that's the reason that I still feel like I'm able to like you know I can't I couldn't control COVID at the beginning of COVID but I could you know watch a movie and be like having my own sort of controlled safe experience in that fear um so it actually feels like pretty psychologically legible to me there's a there's a reason that I think a lot of people who love horror are anxious people <laughs> um I don't think that's like a contradiction I think that actually makes a lot of sense I I totally agree yeah so I want to talk about your stories because Specifically in the collection, Her Body and Other Parties, your stories have some elements of traditional ghost stories or supernatural stories. But what makes them so chilling is that you incorporate so much of the reality of being a woman in the world. And I think The Husband's Stitch, which is probably your most famous story, is such a perfect example of that. Because in this story... The husband seems like a pretty good guy and his wife feels so lucky to have him in her life and yet he just can't accept one of his wife's boundaries and that is where the horror and the tragedy lies in this story. How how did you come up with this 
a blend of like this, you know, sort of tra- traditional horror stories and mixing in these little true details that at least pretty much every woman alive has experienced. Yeah, I mean, I think that like it was just uh, I think that a lot of horror that you know has endured and horror that people have sort of been drawn to is horror that speaks to some part of one's experience or fears. And so I think that like, you know, the reason that like Haunting of Hill House has endured for so long, which is a novel of mine that's that I really adore by Shirley Jackson. I mean, it's for many reasons. It's a beautiful novel. It's gorgeously written. It's really special and really terrifying in a lot of ways. But it's also, you know, it's a story about loneliness and alienation and being a a young woman who doesn't quite know what to do with herself because so much has been asked of her in her life. And now that she's finally on her own, like, how does she how does she exist and how does she live? And that's like a very human fundamental human question that's very relatable to a lot of people and so I think that like you know when I write horror stories you know I'm starting from a a place of my life my fears my dreams you know the bad things that have happened to me and you know horror narratives whatever they are whether they're haunted house stories or demonic possession or or you know whatever like often latch kind of easily onto these really relatable sort of human experiences and so I think I think most writing that endures you know I, I teach a um, I'm currently teaching at the writer's workshop for the semester and um, I'm teaching a literature of haunted houses class and we've been reading a bunch of books we just read The Shining and I had sort of forgotten because you know I haven't read The Shining in a while and The Shining is is not I mean it's about a haunted hotel but really The Shining is about being an alcoholic and an abuser and like trying to come to terms with the fact that you've done something really unspeakable to your to your child and your wife and what it means to try to live with that and that's like a human experience you know that like it is very legible to some people and also then you add this like supernatural element so like I feel like horror is just a it's just yeah it's like a way into our experiences basically absolutely and I think that's why Get Out and Rosemary's Baby and things like that are, are, have become such sensations. Um, mm-hmm. I do wonder you your stories kind of uh, work in several genres. Like it's not just horror, it's not just speculative fiction. When you're starting a story, do you know it's going to be a horror story necessarily? Uh, usually I do only because I am the kind some writers like work from character and I am definitely a writer who works more from sort of genre or concept so oftentimes I'll start with like oh man I want to tell a haunted house story set at a writer's residency or I want to write you know a short story about demonic possession or I want to write a retelling of the girl with the green ribbon around her neck urban legend which is where the husband stitch came from and so usually like from the beginning I have a fairly good sense of like the tone and the atmosphere of the story and less so the plot and the character and the plot and the character is the thing I'm actually trying to figure out. Um, but yeah, so I think I, I usually have a pretty decent sense of what I'm getting into in terms of genre. When you were at the writer's workshop, when you because you actually started this collection at the writer's workshop when you were a student, tell me about that process of finding your voice. Mm. Yeah, well, it's funny because, you know, when I came here as a student many, many years ago... <laughs> want to say how many but when I came here a long time ago um you know a lot of my classmates sort of came with work 
you know, they sort of knew what they were doing. And I feel like right away they sort of hit the ground running and they were working on books that would later become often their debuts or like books that they would later publish. Um, and I was less certain of like what I was doing. I think I, you know, I was a good writer. I was like a good sentence level writer and I had ideas and, and sort of, I had certain sensibilities, but I think I didn't fully understand like what my, yeah, I guess this question of voice, right. Which I think, I think of as like, what you want to say and how you want to say it. So, you know, what obsesses and interests you in terms of theme and subject and also like the mode with which you'll you'll try to explore this material. So whether that's like, you know, I want to write like a multi-generational realist novel, you know, about a family or I want to write like a spooky haunted house novella or whatever it is, right? Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I came here as a student and because I had such wonderful teachers and wonderful classmates, um, I, people were saying to me, like, you need to be reading, like, all these people. And that was when I read Shirley Jackson and Angela Carter and Kelly Link and Helen Oyeyemi and Karen Russell. And I began to really dig into writers who were doing a lot of, like, sort of genre-bendy, meldy, horror, fantasy, sci-fi, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a way where I was like, oh, I actually think that, like, this this interest I have in, you know, things like bodies and women's experiences and sex and sexuality and, like, all these themes that are really interesting to me, I think the way into the story is going to be thinking about genre and thinking about horror and science fiction and fantasy and things like that. And those stories so that they, they match really naturally with each other. Um, and then once I figured that out, then I was, you know, I was off, you know, then I hit the ground running and then I was like, all right, here we go, you know, <laughs> and, and wrote like a bunch of stories that ended up in my first book. I am curious. I have a um, another writer who's been a frequent guest on Talk of Iowa over the years, Benjamin Percy, and he writes oh, yeah. horror novels. And <laughs> yes. when he first started taking writing classes as a student, he was basically told, you can't do that. You can't write genre stories. Did you have any pushback as you were exploring this this voice? I didn't. I mean, I don't know exactly when. Men, you mean when he was a grad student, or I think that was actually an undergraduate experience. But oh, sure. I mean, I think that historically, yeah, it is true that like in some academic settings, historically speaking, genre is. Um, was thought of by certain people as being like, yeah, like separate or different than like, you know, quote unquote, literary fiction or different than realism, which they are different. It's just like a different mode of storytelling. But, you know, there was, I think, some level of snobbery. I do feel like that is a fairly, that's not that common of an experience anymore. I mean, in, uh, you know, graduate school, like I, I know everyone was always just like so excited to like what I was doing. And I feel like every time I had readers come to my work, like they were so generous and thrilled and like, we're like, oh my God, I love what you're doing here. Um, and I think that, and also when I've taught and, you know, I've, I've taught like in all kinds of schools, I mean, for the last, almost last decade. Um, and oftentimes what I'm asked to come in and teach is, is genre because students are so hungry for it and they want it so badly. And, and it's like all they're writing. And so I feel like, you know, um, it, you know, sort of, I mean, the, even this semester, I feel like most of my students, I don't think we've had a single realist story all semester, you know, um, which is like really, I mean, and I also love realism and it offers a lot of things, but also it's been really exciting too get to like see what students are interested in in terms of thinking about questions of like genre and world building and stuff like that. Um, it's been really exciting. Well, that kind of makes sense to me when I think about what you said about how like horror movies, horror stories can be this safe exploration because maybe this is like through writing, it feels like a way to explore these themes in a way that's maybe not as close to home. So it makes a lot of sense to me that people would be hungry for these. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that like, or it like allows you to like, just sort of go a little sideways. I mean, you know, probably the first story that I wrote when I was a student at Iowa that used genre as like a mode of telling was this story that ended up in my first book called Difficult at Parties. And I knew I wanted to write a story about sexual violence and about sort of what is done to the interior self after sexual violence. But I was trying to figure out a way to do it that made sense to me. And ultimately, the the, the sort of the thing I lit upon is a character who is um, after this experience that she has is watching adult films and is can hear in her mind the interior monologues of the care of the people in these films and it's like a way for her to try to get back into her body is like have this experience of like experiencing someone else's interiority and like that's a very like that's a thing that only genre can offer you like that's not a real like you that doesn't happen in real life so like you know, it, it required this way of telling that was like able to go into the story of like, what does it mean to be sort of obliterated from yourself? And how do you like, come back into yourself after something like this has happened? Um, and the way that I that made the most sense to me was this genre sort of. Ta- so yeah, I think that like, this is just, it's just like a way into a story that's different and can be really interesting and gives you like new and more inter- and interesting tools um, to try and like solve the problem of a story and what a story is about. It also feels a little bit like um, we are going back in time. I think of the gothic novels that, you know, were literary fiction and mainstream and nobody's like, oh, you shouldn't read Jane Eyre because that's science fiction. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is a little. Yeah. I mean, like, right. Like, the thing is that we've been writing non-realism for forever. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> like it's been around as long as like we've been writing novels and writing stories and so you know the ghost story is a tried and true tradition that runs throughout all of literature and so I think that like yeah you know it's just a way of telling a story and I think it's one that people for some reason right now are especially interested in which I think is fascinating you think ghosts are having a moment right now (laughs) I do think so I I think genre in general but I think that like I mean I think I think because we are living in like an apocalyptic and horrifying moment um, I think that people are very drawn to apocalyptic and horrifying stories that like reflect you know an essential kind of ambivalence or stress or anxiety that people are experiencing in real life right now um and so yeah i think it is really having a moment we are going to talk more about ghost stories in just a moment but we have to take a very short break we are celebrating halloween today with carmen maria machado you have probably heard of her her short story collection her body and other parties was published in 2017 and won the shirley jackson award and was a finalist for the national book award for fiction and she knows spooky she is also a graduate of the iowa writers workshop with me today in this conversation ipr producer caitlin troutman and we will continue our conversation in a moment this is talk of Iowa. They have no use for your song. You're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead and out of this world. You'll never get a second chance. Plan all your moves in advance. Stay dead, stay dead, stay dead, stay dead and out of this world. Run fast, don't stand in the sun. Too much work to be done You're down, you're down, you're down You're down and out of this world
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are celebrating Halloween today with Carmen Maria Machado. Machado's writing highlights the horror of daily realities in a unique way. It's pretty spooky stuff, at least it can be. Her short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, published in 2017, won the Shirley Jackson Award and was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction. She's also the author of the memoir In the Dream House and a graphic novel series, The Low, Low Woods. And she is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. Also with us today, our resident spooky expert, IPR <laughs> producer, Caitlin Troutman. Carmen, thank you so much for being here today. And I'm curious, we touched on this a little bit, but something I love about ghost stories is what they can tell us about a specific moment in time or a specific place. And so I wonder, as you are writing ghost stories, or even as you're reading them, how do you think about setting? I think that setting is really important to ghost stories. I think there's a reason that, you know, different sort of places different regions have different kinds of ghost stories and um there's actually this really great book that i love um called ghostland by colin dickey and he talks about how if you really want to get to know a place you should ignore the you know the local history like ignore everything else and just look at the ghost stories and that's going to give you a sense of like not only like what has happened in a certain place but also um how people conceive of their own history um or like areas you know people in a certain community or a certain city or whatever think about their own history and so yeah so obviously i think that like setting is so critical and i think that for me yeah like ghost stories are like a way to activate setting or it's like a way to like bring you know because the, the thing about a, a place is that it exists throughout time and a ghost story is a way of having the past and the present kind of like push up against each other and that happens in a in a you know in a house in a, in a community in a in a you know a certain area a bend of a river perhaps um there's all kinds of places where you know um yeah it's like it's thing that's like fixed in time and you can come look at it but it's also a place where like history and the present are together in one spot but why do you think we love ghost stories so much i think that ghost stories offer us a chance well, I think there's a few reasons. I think people like to be scared. I mean, we talked about this already, right? People like to be sort of um, a little frightened. And I think also people are curious about history and what that means to them or a place that they're visiting or a place that they're in. And I don't know. I think that ghost stories also offer us an opportunity to sort of think about the sublime, like think about things that may or may not be real and things that are sort of transcendent and strange um and i think that all people are sort of drawn to even the most you know i am actually the most like kind of pragmatic person when it comes to like thinking about the supernatural in the sense that i don't really believe in the supernatural but i find ghost stories so exciting and i i wish more than anything they could be real i'm like oh my if only a ghost story were real i wish that were true um but yeah i think it like appeals to this part of us that loves to be scared and loves to think about things larger and stranger than ourselves and things that are sort of unseen. That ghost tour that we went on, I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa. So that was a ghost tour of my hometown. And 
for me, it was kind of a funny feeling. It made me feel warm and fuzzy about my hometown, even though like these were terrible stories, terrible stories of accidental death. There were a few murders, some pretty ugly stuff. But it kind of makes you feel like, you know, a secret. Yeah. And it's a way of you getting to understand. It's sort of like, I don't know, like I remember the first time I bought when I bought my first house, I remember like digging into the archives of the city newspaper and like putting in my own address and trying to find stories about people who had lived in this house before me. I mean, I knew who had sort of lived there immediately before me, but I was like, this house has been around for at least 100 years. So like who has like lived and or died in the walls of this home? And like, yeah, it was like a way of like becoming more intimate with the space that I was occupying and like understanding like, you know, at some point, like a young newlywed couple made their home here. And at some, you know, and like at some point, like a woman who was a teacher like passed here. And like, that's just a way of, I mean, I guess you could, it could be frightening to some people. I didn't think it was frightening. I thought it was really beautiful. I was like the space that I live in has this history and I exist in like a continuum of people. Um, and one day maybe somebody will look the story of me up and we'll be like, oh, there was like also a writer who lived here, you know? And I think that's kind of lovely. And I think that it makes sense that you would feel warm about that. Especially if you weren't afraid of such things and you were like, oh, like this is like, I'm understanding something about the past of a place that means something to me. Um and that, that makes total sense to me. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I do notice about a lot of ghost stories, and not all ghost stories, but a lot of the ghosts that we learn about are women, are people who are vulnerable for whatever reason, are um, there are a lot of ghost stories about indigenous people. And I, you, you've noticed that pattern too, right? Why do you think they're so overrepresented in ghost stories. Well, I think, okay, I have like a sort of branching series of answers to these questions. The first question is, are they overrepresented? And I think that sometimes they are, I agree. And sometimes they're underrepresented in ways that are significant. So um, for example, obviously, um, uh, you know, you mentioned like the sort of the, the, the stereotype of like, you know, like, or like the idea of like the indigenous burial ground, right? And the idea that like, you know, a lot of stories about hauntings will say like, oh, but you know, the land, something with the land is like, is like cursed, or there's like sort of like something that like happened here. And oftentimes that what that is, it's like a way of reconciling with uh, the sin of the past. So like, you know, a, an American sin, like, genocide, like colonization, like slavery, right? Where, um, you know, people are trying to account for like, you know, we and like they don't really want to directly talk about how badly they messed up. And so they're like, well, but like, oh, you know, this thing happened here. Um, and and it tells us something about like what we're grappling with or what we're feeling guilty about. Um, and oftentimes ghost stories will also change depending on. So like in the book I mentioned before, Ghostland by Colin Dickey, like he talks about like a certain ghost story somewhere in New England where a story about like a young woman who was like killed by a man on a horse and who the young woman and the man are changes throughout history. So like at some point she's a runaway slave and it's, and he's her, her master like coming for her at some other point. It's more of a story about like class and she's just like a young maid and he's coming after her or there's like an affair between them or something. And at other times, and nowadays this, that particular story is very sort of neutered of like political details. Like the story is like a young woman and a man, like, and there's no sort of like other thing around it. Right. But like all that's telling us is like what was interesting or what was on the mind of like people when they were telling various versions of these stories. And then sometimes 
on the other side of this question is like when do those people get erased from stories so colin dickey also talks about a particular town in the south where he did a bunch of ghost tours and all the ghosts that were allegedly in this very haunted town were white but the town is also the site of like one of the largest like sort of ports for the slave trade in the united states and it's like how on earth could you have a town full of ghosts and none of the ghosts are the people who were like bought and sold in this very place for like a huge chunk of the history of this community and that's a way of then the past being repressed right and it's like we're not going to talk about what we did we're not going to talk about the bad things that happened here we're just going to like think about history in this very sanitized way and some places have better relationships with their own past than other places i think the u.s is particularly bad at having a relationship with its past and its sins um sort of in contrast to places even like like even like france or germany um who oftentimes will have like memorials to like the Holocaust, for example, like just they'll have them like on the streets, like where anyone can see them. And like, you just, you very rarely see that kind of thing in the United States. So yeah. So I think that like the representation of like sort of oppressed groups or people who have experienced oppression throughout history, it's really going to depend on like the relationship with the past that that particular community has, or like a certain, certain people have, and that's going to affect the ghost stories that appear there. I, I will say that part of why I asked that question is because sometimes it feels like these are people who were exploited historically and now we're exploiting them again. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say so. I mean, I think that like cer- and certainly like the role that those stories play and what those stories relationships are with reality, like 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 how close is the story, you know, and I feel like, you know, I love ghost tours. I go on a lot of ghost tours and I feel like rarely am I ever like that I feel like the the point of like the point of the story was feels very strange to me or I'm sort of like wow we really like skipped over this like really big important thing it's like kind of weird um I don't know I think sometimes ghost stories it's funny the idea that a ghost story being sort of sanitized which I think is a kind of a, a violence or you know it's like a the idea that like somebody could have like had something really real and terrible happen to them and that hundreds of years later we're telling some like extremely sanitized version of a story that does not engage with like the things that that person was facing in their life like does feel exploitative I I would agree with that um and I think it just really depends on the kind of story some people who tell ghost stories especially in like ghost tour type settings are very interested in like the kind of gritty real intensity of those stories and some people I think are more interested in just telling like a fun little tale they can like capture you know capture in like a, a little anecdote um and you know I want to talk about haunted houses because you are te- you're teaching a course right now. Tell, am, tell us right about now, that. Yes. Well, it's been fascinating because we're, we're reading books in or- the books in order of uh, chronologically. So we started with the turn of the screw, which is from right before, which is like right at the turn of the of the 20th, 19th, 20th century. And then we also have like we most recently read um and River Sudden's The House Next Door. And before that was The Shining, Haunting of Hill House. We did Rebecca. We did um, The Uninvited by Dorothy McArdle, who's like an Irish, was an Irish writer. Um, and yeah, and I think we're just, it's been really interesting talking a lot about like themes that are appearing. You know, it's obviously the gothic is like a massive influence in the genre. Um, and so talking a lot about themes we sort of see repeated often so like a theme that we've that my classes I sort of zeroed in on this semester has been the theme of the extraneous woman so women who are sort of existing outside of what would have been like the sort of you know um 
societally appropriate roles of their era. So women who are governesses, women who are single, women who are spinsters, women who get married kind of late, women who might be queer, like, the, you know, and like women who, and then like oftentimes they're the ones going mad like inside these homes. And I think those stories are really interested in like, yeah, this question. And the Gothic often is interested in like women in spaces and like women in big spooky rambling houses or manors and like what happens sort of in there. And I think that like, yeah, so we're talking about the extraneous woman as a theme. We've been talking a lot about just like also class is like a massive theme that's been showing up because a lot, you know, and we just we're we just finished a book. Like we're like we're in like the late 70s at this point. But a lot of these stories have like, you know, staff, like people who like these big mansions and then like there's big manors, big houses with servants and cooks and various people. And like, and then more recently, people have been like The Shining is about a man who works as a caretaker for the ho- for a big haunted hotel. So he is the staff or he's part of the staff, right? So like questions of class, um, uh, you know, sort of idleness and versus, you know, like occupation. I mean, there's like, yeah, it's a lot of really like interesting sort of themes and reading them in order is like quite telling actually um it's been really fun i also think about um i haven't read or watched this in a very long time but i think about the amityville horror oh sure and like that family um and then i've heard that they were kind of creating a ghost story in order to kind of not lose money on this house like there there are these very real reasons behind it the Amityville Horror is so interesting because it is, yeah, like, I mean, obviously the book is, like, told as, like, it's an as-told-to, like, true story. And, like, you know, I think most people understand now that it was a hoax, like, it was not real. But if you really read the move, read the book or watch the movie or both, like, those are, that is a story about domestic violence and also about homeownership and money and class and like these are all things that are sort of also appearing in, in those books as well um really you scratch the surface of a lot of these novels and like there is some like really i mean the shining is actually also about like i said it's about also about domestic violence and so i think that like other yeah themes about um uh things that happen in the home or things that are like domestic in nature i think is also why women are overrepresented in this genre in a good i mean in a good way it's like we're so interested in like the domestic and the home space and what that means. And I think that like, because of that historic women have appeared in a lot of these novels. Um, so we're haunted not who, so much by dead people, but by terrible things that have been done to people. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so it's just been, I don't know. It's been like a really delightful semester. I mean, delightful is a strong, it's like very intense. It's like always really intense conversations, but I think it's actually really interesting. And for me, it's like, I think it's just like a really fascinating genre and one that I've really been enjoying digging into. Are you a um, Halloween fan? I love Halloween. Yes, I am at the height of my powers right now, or I'm getting there. <laughs> On the 31st, I can levitate slightly off the ground. So, you know. Nice. What is your favorite thing to do this time of year? Um, I mean, it sort of depends. I mean, as I've gotten a little older, you know, it's like I used to like go to a party or like do a thing, you know, and I'm like, I'm tired. You know, <laughs> um, I really love also like watching little children do trick-or-treating. That is like a thing that I really enjoy. Um, I think it's so cute. And I love watching scary movies and hanging out with friends and you know just like stuff like that but I do really enjoy the feeling of just fall in general and then you add the um and a, a gorgeous Iowa City fall is like a very special thing and then you add scary movies to that I'm just like so happy I've never I, I couldn't be happier it's really like my 
favorite time of year. If you ever find yourself in the Des Moines area around Halloween, they don't do trick-or-treating. They do beggar's night where the kids have to tell you a joke to get their candy. And it is a delight. It is like like only regional to Des Moines. I have never heard of of it anywhere else. But it is so fun. You have to experience it if you have the chance. Like, it's so fun. And if you have friends in Des Moines, you can go because it's the night before Halloween. (laughs) Got it. So you can do beggar's night in Des Moines and then you can hand out candy in Iowa City, too. That is so funny. Well, I also am thinking about like, I remember at some point learning because I grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania and we have, and there was Mischief Night or Devil's Night, which I think was also the day before Halloween. But that was like, the idea was that like teenagers would go around and like egg houses and like create chaos. And I was really frightened to go. Like, I was always really scared and wanted to be inside when I was a child because I was afraid <laughs> that like teenagers would, I don't know throw an egg at me i don't know what i was actually afraid of but i'm <laughs> I was, like, very worried about it beggar's night was like an answer to vandalism like how can we oh can we int- okay interesting, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well i hope you are having a wonderful halloween carmen thank you so much for being with us today of course thank you for having me thank you Carmen Maria Machado. She is the author of the short story collection Her Body and Other Parties, the memoir in the Dream House, and a graphic novel series, The Low, Low Woods. She's also teaching this semester at the Iowa Writers Workshop. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. This episode was produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from Katherine Perkins and Samantha McIntosh. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa. Happy Halloween. Do the wind, the sun, or the rain